0: When was the last time that you were in a fight? I mean, like a real fight, like, like punches, right? <laughs> punches thrown on the ground, tussling, right? And now, uh, how drunk were you when that happened? How drunk was the other guy? Our fight's good. Should we fight? Do you like to fight? Fights are. I don't know. What do we tell our kids? Don't fight. Don't fight. Every day, don't fight, don't fight, don't fight. But we open up to 2 Corinthians 10, and we find that Paul is in a fight. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul is laying the foundation at the beginning of this section of Scripture to understand what is about to happen. We're about to watch a battle. We're about to watch some fists being flung. We're about to watch Paul fight. And Paul understands that this is not something that he just faces at Corinth. He's faced this before. Right after this in Romans, he, when he comes back to Corinth, he writes the book of Romans, he says to the Roman church, put on the whole armor of God. A little while later, he writes to the Ephesian church and he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, We wrestle against spiritual forces of evil in high places. So put on the whole armor of God. We are in a battle. We are in a war. And sometimes that surfaces. Here's one of those spots. Five times, at least five times, overtly, Paul threatens his opponents here. Six different times he makes appeals to the Corinthians to to get on his side. And fights are they're clarifying, aren't they? What are you going to have a fight about? You're going to have a fight about what is important. And in this passage, we see Paul almost kind of clarify for himself what is really most important and what's really going on. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 10. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, Look to chapter 11, verses 12 to 15, the end of our passage. Notice the shift in tone, the meekness and gentleness of Christ. What I'm doing, I'm going to continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim in their boasted mission that they work on the same terms as we do. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, but their end will correspond to their deeds. You notice a little bit of a shift? Meekness, humbleness, gentleness, and then now, they're servants of Satan. So Paul's kind of uh, discovering some things himself. He's clarifying for himself what is worth fighting for. What's worth fighting for, for Paul? Of course, we would say things like... uh, the. Jesus, the gospel. But what this is, as we've talked about before, is Paul fighting for the Corinthian church. He's fighting for their faith and for their partnership together for the gospel there at Corinth and then through Paul to other places. That's what's worth fighting for. And what's worth fighting against? And that's what really comes to the forefront in this passage. What's really worth fighting against is Satan and his servants. Have you ever seen a real fight? Right? Fights are, you look dumb when you're fighting. You look really dumb. They're messy, right? It, no fight ever goes, right? Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth, right? No fight goes the way that you think it's going to go. And they're complicated, right? They're full. Well, why'd you do that? You shouldn't have done that. You should have done this. Right? everybody's got an opinion on what should have gone differently and how oh you shouldn't have done that 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 was wrong right you, you make missteps, and I think you you caught a little bit of where Paul's at in the, this is a fight right did you notice how sarcastic he was and how he's boasting? Did you hear that word a lot boasting bragging right that's that seems kind of unusual coming from scripture to have the apostle of the Lord boasting repeatedly this is a painful session for Paul. He's being sarcastic. He's upset. He's hurt and angry. Look at uh, chapter 11 verse 1. How he talks about what he's doing here. He says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. And then in verse 16 of chapter 11, just outside of our text, he says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool. So he knows that what he's doing is borderline folly. He knows that he looks really dumb doing this, but some things, some things, are worth fighting, and some things are worth fighting for. All right. So, what is Paul up against here at Corinth? And so now we're going to begin to really look at some of the the stakes here, the opponents who've been causing all this trouble. The first thing he says about his opponents is that they are deceivers. Let's, uh, let's pick up in verse 3 of chapter 11. Paul says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Let's pick up in verse 2. I missed something there. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way I have made this plain to you in all things. So, Paul's opponents are deceivers. They're trying to lead the Corinthian church, maybe even unintentionally, away from the real Jesus, the real gospel, the real spirit, and the work of Paul. Do you remember how you felt the first time you watched Frozen? And you realized that Prince Hans was not sincere. Right? And his, his overtures towards Anna, which seemed so fun and, and uh, such a blessing to the royal family up to that point, and he revealed that he was just after the throne and he was willing to, to do whatever. Right, That's what Paul's trying to do here. He's trying to say, Prince Hans is not who you think he is. He said, I'm trying to betroth you to Christ. I'm trying to get you married to the one who will never let you down and who will keep you forever. And there's these other folks out there, who are trying to deceive you. They're trying to trick you. They're trying to you know, finish, uh, sing along with you so you feel better about yourself. But they're not going to deliver you to the real Christ. They're not delivering the real gospel. They're not following the real spirit. And they're trying to get them away from Paul as well. So they're deceptive teachers. That's what we learn here, first of all, that they're deceivers. They're teaching about Jesus, about the gospel. They're claiming the spirit but it 's not the one that paul 's talking about it's not it 's not paul 's Jesus the real jesus paul 's gospel, the real gospel. not only that, but they are parasites let 's pick up in verse seven Paul says, "Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached god 's gospel to you free of charge? This is one of the accusations of his opponents that uh, verse eight, I robbed other churches. one of their claims was that <clears throat> Everybody knows that any teacher worth anything charges. It's just standard practice. It's not just in the Jewish world. It's in the Roman world, right? We've talked about these guys as kind of like TED Talk speakers. They're, They're professional speakers. And so they go around and they say, wait, hold on, Paul didn't charge? He did all this for free? Oh, that's suspicious. And they were telling the Corinthian church that because Paul preached for free, and then was asking him to take a collection for the saints in Jerusalem, that what Paul was actually doing was playing a long game. He was was pulling a long con on the Corinthian church, telling them all this good news for free, but so that he could take this big collection to Tahiti uh, later on in the story. That collection we just got done talking about in chapters 8 and 9, Paul's trying to get them to make sure that they have the money set aside that they promised. Why might that be at risk? It's because these guys are charging for their services. They show up and they say, why don't we take a love collection here for us? Why don't we take another one because the first one wasn't adequate enough? And they're siphoning off the money that's supposed to go to the work there at Corinth and also to the collection that Paul's going to take to Jerusalem. So these are deceivers. They are parasites. And then this is revealed later. They are false apostles serving Satan. Let's look at verse 12 to 15 again. We'll pick up in verse 13. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Verse 15, it's no surprise if Satan's servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They are deceivers, parasites, false apostles serving Satan. Now I want you to just see them the way the Corinthian church would see them for just a second. So try to imagine what these teachers, what these apostles look like. They're eloquent. They're educated. right? They're they're culturally normal. You meet them, and how do you feel? You like them. They're friendly. They're talking. They talk. They talk Bible. They talk Jesus. They're quoting scripture. They sound really good. If you want to push on them a little bit, hey, maybe maybe you're you're not the real deal. They they pull out a piece of paper with a letter of recommendation on it, right? They're well credentialed. They're, again, they're, they're culturally acceptable. You know what that means? That means they're easy on the eyes and they're easy on the ears. And you're not going to be embarrassed about your association with them. Like when you tell people, oh, where, where do you go to, what, what God do you worship? What, what divinity? Oh, we go to the church with so-and-so. Oh, I love so-and-so. He's so cool. That's, what the corinthians see they see people who through their association with the corinthian church makes the corinthian church feel proud we've got these guys here and yeah they're a little expensive but oh they're great they're great the gospel that they're preaching the jesus that we meet through their teaching oh we love that jesus and gospel and now what does paul see though What Paul sees is he sees Satan's spies. He sees people who are changing the gospel, who are destroying the work of this church, Paul's work, who are opposing the Spirit of Jesus and all that the Spirit is at work doing. Paul sees these guys and the Spirit in a kind of a tug of war for the Corinthian church. That's what he sees. I'm a big fan of the, the DC comic world, Superman. Were, one of his opponents was, was Bizarro Superman. Lex Luthor hit Superman with a duplicator ray and created a second Superman who would obey Lex Luthor. Now, this caused all sorts of problems because Bizarro Superman was doing all sorts of stuff, but he looked just like Superman, unless you were up really close to him. He looked like Superman, but he was doing all sorts of stuff that made you think, well, could that be the real Superman? I don't think the real Superman would do that, but it looks just like Superman. All right, so Satan, he can't bizarro Jesus, right? He can't replicate Jesus, so what does he do instead? He creates bizarro teachers, bizarro apostles. That's these guys. Super apostles who are saying that Paul is inferior to them. Real apostles who are at least as equal in apostleship as Paul. Satan creates bizarro apostles to teach a bizarro gospel. And that's what's going on at Corinth. And their strategy now, I want you, this is a really important thing to see. The strategy of these teachers is to put Paul down and create a distance between Paul and the Corinthian church. We see this right away in chapter 10, verse 1. You'll notice in all these verses, Paul's addressing what sounds like somebody's accusation to him, about him. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, whom hum- who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. So who's saying that about Paul? These guys. Verse 10. They say his letters. Who's they? These false teachers. These super apostles. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. They are classifying Paul and comparing Paul with themselves. And then we already saw how in chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? So they're, they're making all sorts of accusations against Paul. And the, their goal is to separate Paul from his church. Right, the bad guys need to separate the Corinthian church from Paul. Which unfortunately, from what we know of Corinth, was pretty easy for them to do. I don't know if you remember at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, uh, I hear that there's all these divisions among you. Some of you saying, I follow Paul, and I follow Cephas, and I follow Apollos, and, and some follow Jesus. Paul's the only apostle they've met, He's the one that founded that church, and already, 1 Corinthians 1, there's other groups saying, we want to follow Peter. We don't want to follow Paul. We want to follow a real apostle of Jesus. Or we want to follow Apollos. We don't want to follow Paul. We want to follow somebody who's sophisticated, who's an apostle for the modern age. Like They're already splintering off from Paul, their founding father apostle. That's how the Corinthian letters start, and now at the end of the Corinthian letters, it's the same thing. Like, because the Corinthian culture was, I don't know if you remember this, this, this new money culture where everybody is climbing and clamoring for upward social mobility. They all want to be seen with so-and-so, snapping selfies, posting it on the gram, so that everybody looks at them and knows who they are and knows their relative value regard, relative to everybody else. And Paul is just, he is not photogenic. You've got to put a lot of filters on that brother to make him shine on social media. So they're quickly looking for somebody else, but Paul's the guy. He's the guy who's been entrusted by Christ and by the Jerusalem apostles with the gospel for the Gentiles. So this separating Paul from the church appeals to the Corinthians in a lot of ways. It's not good. There's a danger at the heart of all this This is the heart of Paul's worry. What happened to the focus and enthusiasm that you once had for Jesus? That's the question he has for the Corinthian church at this moment. And who helped that happen? Look with me at verse 3 of chapter 11. This This is the heart of Paul's anxiety. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. They are in danger of being led away from a sincere and pure devotion. Another way to, to say those that phrase is a single-minded, sincere focus on Jesus. Sincere, single-minded focus on Jesus. They're in danger of their thoughts being turned away. That word turned away also means corrupted. They're in danger of this and there are people helping that happen. That's verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another of all these things. So what's Paul going to do? Here's what Paul's going to do. Look down to verse 10 of chapter 11. He says, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia." And why? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. And what I'm doing, I'm going to continue to do. Paul's saying, I am going to keep making noise. I'm not going to let this happen quietly. This is not going to be okay. Look back in verse 3. Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. That's what's happening to you. I mean, what Paul feels is happening here, he's like, it's like the garden all over again. We've got this group of, of cunning people who are telling half-truths and giving false hopes. They're tricky, right? They're very logical, they're, they're Bible-ish, and, and the Corinthian church is naive and experienced with these things. It's just like in the garden, What should Adam have done? What should he have done? You know what Adam should have done? He should have boasted in the Lord. He should have said, we don't need that fruit. Do you know who our God is? Our God is so good and he's going to take care of all of our needs. And look at what he's already given us. We don't need that fruit. Look at all that he's given us. His word is trustworthy. We know that because of all that he's done for us and because of who he is revealed in all he's done for us. We don't need that fruit. Get out of here. Our God is greater. He's going to boast and he's going to brag about God and and shoo the serpent and his lies away. But he didn't do that, did he? What does Adam do in that passage? What does he say? Remember his famous line? No. Because he doesn't say anything. Because he keeps his mouth shut. And Paul says, I'm not going to be silenced in all of the Corinthian area. And what I'm doing, I'm going to keep doing. This isn't Paul's first rodeo. He met guys like this in Galatia. You remember the, the letter to the Galatians? He was so angry in that letter. Paul, the angry apostle. Well, he's got good reason to be angry, he knows the stakes. Here in chapter 11, verses 28 to 29, he he reveals a little vulnerability. He says, apart from all of the problems in my life, I have the daily pressure of anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? You get what he's saying? That when people succumb to the pressures of these deceivers, these braggarts, these siphoning off false teachers... When, when people succumb to that, it, it hits Paul. They're made weak in their faith. It makes Paul's faith weak. They fall away from the church, and Paul's like, what do I do now? He knows what the stakes are. And so he says, I'm not going to be quiet. I will not be silenced. This boast of mine will not be silenced, and I will continue to make this kind of noise. He's going to do what he needs to do in order to keep them Safe. The movie adaption of The Lord of the Rings has a, a, a scene that the books don't have. And it's this really, it's probably the worst moment in the story. It's a moment where they're just before they go into uh, this big spider lair. And Gollum successfully separates Sam and Frodo. He deceives Frodo... Enough to get him to send Sam away. And that is the most fragile moment in the story because now Frodo doesn't have the guy who keeps him tethered to the mission and keeps him safe. That's what is happening in Corinth. The sneaking, lying deceivers with their half gospel and their half Jesus and their half spirit are trying to separate the Corinthian church from Paul, and so, what does Paul do? Uh, look again at verse four of chapter eleven. Paul says, "If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, then the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, so that's different from the one that we proclaimed." The one that we proclaimed and you accepted. So so Paul's trying to surface the connection that he has. We gave you this gospel. You received it from us. And they're doing a different thing. So Paul wants them to understand that the true gospel, the true spirit, the true Jesus is attached for the Corinthian church to Paul. It's attached to Paul. Now this is where we get into kind of like, is Paul being okay here? He's talking about himself a lot. We're trained that it's not polite to talk about yourself a lot. It's not polite to boast and brag. But it's Satan's strategy to separate the Corinthian church from Paul. And so part of what Paul has to do is remind them of who he is. And that's really what most of our passage, chapter 10 through 11, is. Is Paul reminding them of his relationship with them and his relationship with Jesus. And why he is trustworthy. So let's just review this briefly. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 12 is all about how Paul is greater in authority than these other guys. In verse 8, Paul says, even if I'm boasting a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave me for building up and not for destroying you, I won't be ashamed. He said, I'm doing this. We're doing this. I'm going to boast of my authority. He boasts in verses 13 to 18 of the Lord's use of him, how useful he is to the Lord. He says in verse 18, just so we understand what's happening here, he says, it's not the one who commends himself whom the Lord... Who is approved? So he's not trying to commend himself, but he's saying the one whom the Lord commends is approved. And we know that the Lord commends Paul because he says in verse 13, we're not going to boast beyond our limits, but we'll boast with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even to you. So he's saying God has used me. I'm useful to the Lord. I'm I'm greater in usefulness. I've made it all the way by the grace of God to Corinth. Corinth. He goes on and he says in chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, he talks about how he is greater in knowledge and in disciple-making. This is what verse 6 is about. He says, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. I'm greater in knowledge of the gospel. Indeed, in every way we've made this plain to you, that's discipleship. Paul's saying, I've done the work. I'm greater than them in disciple-making as well. And then in verses 7 to 11 of chapter 11, Paul says he is greater in his love for the Corinthian church. And that's what that whole passage about how he didn't take money from them because he didn't want to be a burden on them. Verse 11, why? Because I don't love you? God knows I would love you. He's greater in his love for the Corinthian church. Is fighting Right is bragging right right these are the things we tell our kids don't fight stop fighting don't brag it's rude but are there some things worth fighting for what paul is really doing here is he's just describing the work of christ in his life he talks about trying to bring every thought captive to christ and he says that we belong to Christ. And in verse 18, he says, the, the Lord, we're looking for the Lord's commendation. He says we want everybody to have a pure focus and devotion on Jesus Christ. And in verse 10 of chapter 11, he says, the truth of Christ is in me. So everything he's doing, he's doing to serve Christ and to seek the Lord's commendation. That's why he's doing, that is the whole reason why he's doing it. Why are the other guys doing what they're doing? that's Paul's motive, if that's his goal, why are they doing what they're doing? Who are they serving? And what Paul discerns through this passage, as we've seen, is that, verse 12, track with me the logic here before we, we shift gears. Paul says, what I'm doing I'll continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their mission they work on the same terms as we do. So they're saying we're Paul's equals. If they're claiming to be equals with Paul, then he says, no, 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 they're false apostles. This is not true. They're false apostles serving Satan. Now, they're probably not consciously serving Satan, right? We need to understand this. Like, it's not like they're up here going, oh, we love Jesus, Jesus is great, and they're all going and drinking goat blood or out pentagram later on and, you know, bowing down to a satanic figurine. That's not what's happening here. They don't think they're worshiping Satan. Paul's saying Satan is, is using them. He's using them because they are willing, like Paul is not, they're willing to preach a little bit of a different Jesus and a little bit of a different gospel and a little bit of a different spirit. So that's the situation. What should the Corinthian church do with this situation? What should we do? We find ourselves in similar situations. Negatively, look at verse 4 again. Look at the very end phrase of verse 4. So if someone comes and does all this different Jesus, different gospel stuff, what does he say? You put up with it readily enough. Here's what Paul wants the Corinthian church To do. Stop putting up with it. Stop putting up with it. Stop putting up with it. Stop tolerating distractions that are ruining the singleness of your devotion to Christ. What has captivated our minds? Captivated? We go, Captivated looks like this. But what is it captivated related to linguistically? Captured, right? What are our minds captivated with? What are our passions inflamed by? What makes you angry? What brings you relief? Is it Jesus done? Or is it related to Jesus maybe kind of? I don't know if that's a single minded devotion to Jesus, then, is it? Paul's saying these guys are tricky. They're, they're introducing distractions. They're not saying, stop with Jesus, let's bring Baal back. That was fun. They're saying, Jesus is great. I just love how Jesus does, and they, and they take us off. Distracting us from Jesus and diluting the Corinthian church from what God has called them to do there in Corinth, in the regions of Achaia. How do, we, how do we talk about this now in the American church? I've heard this story uh, from a couple different sources lately, so I think I have to use it in a sermon. Um, a couple of fish are floating in the ocean, and this older fish comes up to them and says, uh, Hey, guys, how's the water? He swims off. A couple of moments pass by, and the fish look at each other, and they say, What's water? I think in America, because of our Christian ish culture, there are so many false apostles, so many non church actors, religious persona brands, and media savvy teachers. There's so many of them, and they are so well established with books, dozens of books, personal publishing houses, schools, websites, big campuses international outreaches. There's so many of them. They're so well established that it's almost, I feel, it is impossible to pinpoint a few who are uniquely troubling any given church. If I said a couple names, if I said three dozen names, most of us would be like, well, they didn't talk about my guy. There's so many of them. The world that Paul is like holy smokes and he's calling the corinthian church's attention to that's our ocean that's the water that we're swimming in do you remember that fire in ohio uh, on that river in ohio that 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 river in ohio that caught on fire in the 60s you remember hearing about that like it was so polluted so densely filled with chemicals industrial chemicals that it caught on fire That's our ocean. So many of these sorts of characters. And they're so well established. The distraction and dilution of the church has become, in many of our minds, the church. And these sort of people are no longer merely acceptable. They're the norm. They're the standard that measures other churches in their faithfulness. And whether the blessing of God is on those churches as well. So, because that feels like an impossible task to describe this negatively, I want to use positive language. So if the problem is that we're being deceived and drawn away from something, then the solution would be to return to it, right? That would be the solution. Look with me at chapter 10, verse 7. What does Paul say there? I think this is the positive to the negative of stop putting up with this. I think what Paul wants him to do is this. Look at what's in front of you. Look at what is in front of you. For Paul, in this context, look at what in front of, what's in front of you means, first of all, Paul. <laughs> look at me. And look at what we're doing here together, guys. Look at your, look at your fellow church members. Look at Jesus. Look at Him again, afresh, and, and renew the singleness and sincerity of your focus and devotion to Him. And look at what's in front of you. God has called you where he's put you. Where we are, where we find ourselves, is not by accident. We are not billiard balls banging around the empty universe. We are servants of the Most High God. And where we find ourselves is where we've been put. And there's people there. And there's problems there. And there's challenges there. And there's opportunities there. You remember the story that Jesus tells of the parable of the sower? The sower goes out and he sows all the gospel seed, right? What does the gospel do when it lands on good soil? When it enters a good life, right? When it enters a life that's receptive to it. The the first thing the gospel does is it puts down roots. That's the problem with all those other seeds, all the other soils. The gospel, when it hits that black dirt, puts down roots. And then it bears fruit. What's worth fighting for? What's worth fighting for? I think this is what Paul would say. This is what he says. What's worth fighting for? Look at what's in front of you. The world is not yours. But this is yours. So let's live for Jesus. Let's live for the gospel, for the sake of the people, where God has placed us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you your word. We pray, Lord, that it would dwell in us richly. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would bring a attention in each one of our lives to things, people that are distracting us from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. And that you would return us to that single-mindedness through that to that sincerity in our walk with Him. And that we would hear what Paul says to look at what's in front of us, to receive the calling that You've laid on us, and to follow Your Spirit here. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.